0: You're listening to the class on task podcast created for educators, your hosts, Ashley and Brian will share tips, strategies, and resources related to behavior and education that can help you in your classroom.
1: Today, we have a special guest on our show for the class on task podcast, who is sharing his views on the education system and providing valuable suggestions for educators. Adam Mentor is a board-certified behavior analyst who has a wide variety of experience in the field of behavior analysis. He's been teaching at the university level for over 10 years, impacting over 7,000 students. And not only is he passionate about the behavior science and teaching, he also infuses behavior science into his businesses. Welcome, Adam. We appreciate having you on our podcast.
2: Oh, thank you both for having me here. How are you two doing today? Doing well. Doing well, doing well. Uh, For us Florida people, it's starting to get uh, pretty hot down here.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Where I am in New Jersey, Adam, we're we're finally uh, starting to get that warmth that you've all been experiencing. So it's it's nice to be able to get close to uh, summer.
2: Yeah, give us a call when it gets humid up there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So Adam, we're super excited to have you on our, on our show today. For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience with behavior science and education?
2: Sure, absolutely. So I've been in behavior analysis for about 17 years now. And I got my start, like so many many of us did, working with kids and adults with special needs. And after I got certified uh, at at the master's level, I began teaching at university. And I've been teaching undergraduate courses in behavior analysis for, uh, as you mentioned in my bio, for about 10 or 11 years. Uh, I took uh, some time off in between, but... In total, it comes out to about 10 or 11 years. And I teach often. I teach a lot of classes and I teach a lot of students in each class. So that number that you mentioned, 7,000 students, that's direct impact. I directly taught somewhere about 7,000, 7,500 students over the course of a decade because I taught a lot of the intro courses. The intro courses had two to 300 students, which is problematic and something that we can definitely discuss today. And I taught oftentimes two to three courses per semester, and I would teach every semester. So I would teach spring, fall. Sometimes I would teach both summer courses, those crazy summer courses that are six weeks, three hours a day where you're just exhausted uh, by the end. Yeah, so I have a good amount of experience teaching at the undergraduate level for a good amount of time now.
1: Excellent. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I can relate to you uh, on, the, on the teaching front with that. So that is a lot. But it's nice to hear because you've obviously made an impact on a lot of individuals. I'm hearing.
2: Yeah, something that, that I really enjoyed with teaching was getting that aha moment that we would get with students uh, when you would first introduce them to behavior science and uh, the application of that science. And when I was teaching, I, I took a lot of pride in the number of students that I taught. But as I got older and more experienced with teaching, I realized the value of going into depth with some of these concepts because I would just provide them with a superficial understanding of behavior science. I mean, how much can you get through in one semester? You know, and then some of those students I would see in the advanced class later on or, you know, we have a course sequence at the university. So I would see some of those students stick with it. In fact, a lot of them did, which was great. You know, that was more evidence that, you know, I really made an impact on their lives, but for the students that I didn't, you know, depending on the length of the semester, a summer semester is six weeks, fall semester is what? Three months, three and a half months, something like that. You know, can you really gain a mastery of those topics In three and a half months? And then more importantly, does that information maintain over time? Does it generalize to other areas of their lives? Things like that. So those are some of the topics that we can discuss today. But I would say that my interest in teaching really evolved. So in the beginning, as I said, I was super interested in contacting as many students as I could. And as time has passed, I've really developed an interest in going more in-depth into expanding students' repertoire of understanding with regards to behavior science and human behavior in general.
0: All right, Adam, I think that was a great point that, yeah, you can teach a lot of students, but the amount of content that you're able to to teach and how in-depth you're able to go and the quality of that content really is important. I know from what we've discussed before, your view on the education system may be a little different than some traditional opinions on the education system. So do you mind sharing a little bit about your perspective from a behavioral standpoint of what you think about the education system?
2: Sure, that's that's a loaded question. So let's see how I can organize all that information, and <laughs> we're jumping into it. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting the way you pose that question too, because I would be curious to see uh, survey data on how the rest of our country feels about the current state of our education system. Because I would imagine most of them would think that it's not it's not as healthy as it could be right now. Yeah. So based on my experience, based on my education and behavior science, I, I think that there's two fundamental issues that we're running into with our education system here, at least in the United States. And that is how to teach and what to teach. So I think what to teach didn't used to be as much of a problem. I think it's becoming more problematic, especially in the course of the last five to 10 years. But the enduring problem really, I think, over the course of the last 50, 60 years has been how to teach. So I think it would be worthwhile to start by talking about what teaching is from a behavior perspective, and then we can kind of dive into how that's not happening in the current education system. So if I were to define education, I would say uh, from a behavioral standpoint, if one person's actions affect what another person does or can do then I would say teaching has occurred. Another way to look at this is we're getting information from one place, whether it's a book or the internet or a teacher, to another place, which is the student's repertoire of knowledge. So teachers, if they're effective teachers, are helping students gain skills through uh, instructional design, which we're going to talk about today, and some sort of feedback. I think there's an important component to that, which is that teaching is interactive. And I'd like to talk about this a little bit uh, when we talk about the different instructional uh, design methodologies, but I I think teaching is best done when the child plays an active role in instruction. So it's not just a teacher presenting or lecturing. In fact, I would say that that would be a non-exemplar, a non-example of what teaching is. So teaching isn't presenting, it's not lecturing, it's not reading from a PowerPoint, it's not reading from a book and saying this, this, this and this. And this is something that for the behavior analysts out there that are familiar with her, for the people that are not behavior analysts, Julie Vargas wrote a great book called uh, Behavior Analysis for Effective Teaching. And in there, she talked about that you can't really have a discussion about what teaching is without talking about the impact on the learner. The measure of a teacher is in the behavior or the performance of the learner. So if we're going to have a discussion about teaching, we have to have that discussion about the active role that the student or the child plays in learning. So teaching, one person's actions affect what another person does, and then we could we could say that a child or a student has been taught when they're moved to engage in some sort of novel behavior that maintains over time. So, this is really where, and I'm going to use myself an exa- as an example here. When I was teaching courses that had two, 250 students, if the students weren't learning, was I really teaching? And I think that's an important question that a lot of teachers need to ask themselves and then, and then start asking deeper questions like, how did this happen and how can we change this? So I, I think it's worthwhile now that we've kind of established what teaching is, I think it's worthwhile to have a discussion about how we got to where we are right now with regards to the current education system. And I took an education course uh, years ago and learned a little bit about the history of our current education system. And we've got, especially in K through 12, we've got a model that a lot of people refer to as the factory model of learning, or um, I I think in the uh, books, they called it the Prussian model of learning because uh, that's where it was developed. But basically, it came into fruition sometime in the late 17 uh, or 1800s, and then it was eventually it eventually migrated over to the United States. I think sometime in the late 1800s by Horace Mann, if I'm not mistaken. And it's basically a if you imagine like an assembly line of individuals that are lumped in together based on age-based cohorts, and saying basically we're going to teach. In this particular format, it's going to be K through 12. And it's interesting to have a discussion about that too. Um, Sometime in the late 1800s, I believe as well, they codified this particular education system by 10 people. 10 people got together in the United States. And I think it was led by the president of Stanford or Harvard. And they got together and they said, we're going to teach everyone the same thing. So they basically standardized everything. Uh, They said, we're going to teach everyone the same thing and at the exact same time. So we're going to have 12 years of education. And at this level, we're going to teach this. And at this level, we're going to teach this. And this level, we're going to teach that. And it was basically, as I pointed out, age-based cohorts. Now, if I could jump back really quickly to uh, behavior analysis science, something that I learned a long time ago from The person that was the director at the university that I teach at right now, his name is Jack Gewirtz. Something that he used to talk about all the time, he was a behavior scientist, is that age is a hollow variable. It doesn't impact the way that we think it does, especially from a behavior science perspective. So we really developed this education system, what now, 150, 160 years ago, something like that. And it's really out of date now. And it really needs to be updated. So instead of just kind of moving students through based on their age and saying, look, by the time you hit 10 years old, you need to be in fifth grade or fourth grade or whatever it is now. And you need to have learned this by this point. So I think that's definitely where things started. And then I think what evolved from there was some of the more problematic issues with teaching. So There's a lot of aversive control used in teaching. So there's a heavy focus on students doing things to avoid getting into trouble. And I think Mm -hmm. the same conditions are placed on teachers as well. And I, I really don't want this to be an indictment on teachers at all. I think that there are so many great teachers out there. In fact, I think most teachers out there are phenomenal. I really think this is more a cultural problem with the education system than it is with anything else.
0: I'm glad you said that too, because you're know, having this topic, I don't I don't want to offend any teachers or make any teacher think, oh, I'm not doing what I should be doing. So that's a great point to make. And it's crazy thinking how long we've had the school system set up like this, where everyone's classified by grade and you're expected to meet whatever the standardized expectations are per grade level, per age, and the punishment part of it too. I feel like a lot of teachers are, they do things so they get the perfect score or they're doing things to avoid getting that mark off on their observation for the principal. And same thing with the kids. we've had another episode earlier where we talked to Dr. Gavoni about punishment with kids, even like, Kids are avoiding having to go to the principal's office, or the first go-to thing is always kind of that consequence of punishment of okay, you lose recess, or you lose opportunities to earn whatever it is. So I think that's a, a huge, huge issue.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely, there's there's a ton of use of uh, aversive control, and then. If we think about like the ways that we try to fix the educational system, and if we're talking about fixing the educational system, I think it's important to talk about what our goals are. But whenever we try to fix the education system, what are the things that we do? We throw money at it. We try Mm -hmm. to extend the amount of time that students are in class, say, we're going to, we need to have longer school days. We need to have longer school weeks, longer school years. And then we start comparing ourselves to other countries and saying, you know Mm -hmm. what, this country doesn't have a summer. Kids should be taught year round. And then again, they go back to, well, we need more money in education. We need more training. Now, all of those things can be helpful, but I don't think that they're going to be as useful as people think unless they focus on instructional design. And I I, I think that this is where we can really start diving into the meat of the issue with the educational system, which is, the lack of programmed instruction. And this is something, so we're all behavior analysts and uh, this is something that B.F. Skinner talked about on several occasions. He wrote a book called The Technology of Teaching. He's written several articles on the state of the American educational system. In one of those articles, he talked about four specific things that we can do better. One of the first things that he talked about was be clear about what we want to teach. And I think that kind of dives into what we want to teach. So from organizational behavior management standpoint, we talk about pinpointing, being specific about uh, what you want to teach. Some other things that he talked about was programmed instruction, making sure that you break down complex skills into step-by-step fashion. And then something that he talked about that we alluded to earlier that I think is really important is students learning at their own pace. That is so, so important. So we've created this system, this K through 12 system where kids have to get through kindergarten and they have to learn this, 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 and this. And in first grade, second grade, all the way up through junior high and high school. And this creates two unavoidable problems. The kids that are falling behind have a problem keeping up and the kids that are way ahead are held back because they have to be. They they're stuck in this particular age based cohort, and they're lo- not allowed to move forward. Now, there's some programs out there. There's honors programs, AP programs, gifted programs. Some kids, you know, skip grades and things like that. But that's rare. So I, I think something that uh, Skinner talked about that I think would be a very viable solution right now would be the focus on children moving at their own pace. And I, I don't want to restrict this to just kids. I think the same issue occurs throughout education. So whether it's K through 12 or undergraduate or graduate years, and, and we see this a little bit more uh, for those of us that have a PhD, understand that you certainly move at your own pace there. Um, yeah. yep. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people get stuck there for, you know, half a decade, a decade, and then never leave the program. But I I think that that would would be an important solution that we could talk about right away that would make a a pretty big difference.
1: Yeah, I think that's a super valuable point that you're making there, Adam, because really when you look at it, I mean, half the time when I go into schools and I look at like a kindergarten class or a first grade class, I'm like what are you learning? Like, I didn't learn that to like third grade, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's one of those things that like, like you said, historically, like we're in kind of a system that, that has been outdated, right? And we're trying to like catch up by throwing more at it. But the system's kind of, for lack of a better word, broken in a way that we haven't evolved to, to be able to kind of catch up. And I think you're, you're proposing some good ideas there, you know, from a Scenarian perspective of like, how could we catch up in a more effective way?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So I also think it's it's important to have a discussion while we're talking about solutions here. I think it's important to have a discussion about the difference between three different words. So the three different words that I'd like to bring up are technology, invention, and innovation. And I, I've spent a lot of time at education conferences, specifically ed tech conferences. And I think it's worthwhile to dive into what those are and what those mean. So if we talk about, maybe it's better to start with invention. So let's start with an invention. So an invention is some sort of new device that we create. So it could be a useful device. It could be something that's not so useful, but it's some sort of device. Now let's move over into what uh, technology is. So technology is the application of scientific principles and laws. And the reason that I bring this up is there's so many different types of technologies out there. So there's digital technologies, there's mechanical technologies, there's behavioral technologies. So applied behavior analysis, what we're all certified in is a technology. It's a scientific technology. Now, what I see oftentimes when I go to, especially ed tech conferences, are new devices and all sorts of new devices. And we've all seen these new learning management systems. And it's interesting too, because it's almost like a contradiction in terms because so many of those LMSs out there don't actually manage learning. They manage administration behind learning, right? So, so many of these new companies are coming out with ways to store data and to upload documents and to send out messages on an internal messaging board and that's fantastic that can make a teacher or, or an administrator's life a lot easier but is it really an innovation in learning and i think that's this is where we get to that third word which is innovation and innovation is a better way of doing something it's it's a prepared and designed change it's it's planning for change in a particular way it's um It's a deviation from the current practice that that should result in better learning outcomes. So if we're talking about innovations in learning, um, we're talking about some sort of change in what we're doing that results in better learning outcomes. Now, the key point here, and why I wanted to draw a distinction between devices and technology and innovation is innovation doesn't necessarily mean a new device and this goes back to how so many administrators or how so many politicians or the people that are in charge are trying to improve learning by saying, you know what? Schools need more money. Schools need a new device. They need all kids need computers. Okay? Well, I'm sure computers would be helpful, but what about the design of that instruction and I really think that's where applied behavior analysis and some of the sub technologies that we've developed, like precision instruction, direct instruction, personalized system of instruction can really come in and help out. And it's interesting too, because, and and I'm jumping around here a little bit, but one of those issues with the factory model of learning that we have is we have one teacher with 30 to 40 students. And that's an overwhelming amount. It's it's impossible to provide appropriate feedback on every question, every answer, every skill throughout the course of the day. And this is where new devices like computers, tablets, the internet, all the different programs that we've come up with can really jump in and help. Now, they're not providing the instructional design, we need instructional designers to step in and say, look, this is how the device and technology should work. But the key point to devices and that type of technology is it can help scale. So One designer, one instructional designer can sit down with computer program, a competent instructional designer can sit down with one computer program, design it in such a way that the students receive the feedback that they need at scale. And we can really personalize it to those students, I think.
0: I think that's a really, really good point, especially about the feedback. I know when I was teaching, there were several different programs we were using. And even now when I'm in the classroom, I'll see students who are Using a computer program and I'm watching them and they're just clicking the next arrow and they go to the question, they read it, sometimes they guess, sometimes they get it right and they're clicking through, but they're not getting that immediate feedback or if they are getting feedback, it's no, you're wrong, here's the right answer and then they keep going and then it progresses to the next lesson and there's really not that part that you're talking about, the more of the instructional design where they're getting more feedback, more practice, having to kind of master it before moving on to the next level.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And you mentioned a key term there, which is mastery of skills. So I think that's worth having a quick discussion about as well. And there's so many different definitions of mastery out there. So I'd like to propose different elements Of mastery. So when I look at this as kind of existing on this uh, continuum, and it starts at the beginning with competency. So I I see if you or anyone else wants to perform a skill, we should be able to do it competently. And from a behavior science perspective, I would say that's performing the skill accurately. Mm -hmm. So, okay, great. We can perform this skill accurately. Then as we go down that continuum, the next level I would say would be fluency. So at this point, now we can not just do it accurately, but we can do it accurately and quickly. So fluency is that interesting combination of speed plus accuracy. Then we get into different components of mastery. So maintenance. Does this skill maintain over time? Generalization. Does it occur in other places with other people? Automaticity. Do they have to spend their energy? Do they have to attend to the task while they're doing it? And I think the beginning of the, that continuum is competency. And I think the end of that continuum is independence. I think that they, if someone can do something quickly and accurately... It maintains over time. They can do it in different places and they can do it independently. I think they've mastered that skill. And to bring this back to the education system and talking about the goals of the education system, what are the goals? And I think the most important goal of of any education system in any society is to produce independent functioning members of society that contribute to that society in some way. Now, is the current education system supporting that? And this goes into what we're teaching. Do we teach kids, especially at an early age, the skills that they need to be independent, functioning members of society that contribute to that society? So let's think about some of the things that we do, because I think that there is an undeniable link between K through 12 and college. I think college has become such a big deal over the course of, especially since the beginning of the century, everyone should go to college. Um, That's the big banner phrase, right? Everyone should go to college. (laughs) Should everyone go to college? I don't think so. I don't think every single person should go to college. So let me see if I can connect some of these dots here. So we teach certain skills to uh, students throughout K through 12, and then they get to the end of high school. And we ask students at that point, at like 17 or 18 years old, to make a life-changing decision. We ask them to make a $50,000 to $100,000 decision (laughs) at 17 or 18 years old and say, you know what? We need you to take on these loans for the next four years, and we promise that things will be great afterwards. Regardless of what degree you get, (laughs) uh, regardless of what you're studying, everything will be fine. And then we extend school and now uh, we're pushing a lot more for graduate degrees. And I think, you know, I I think we could look at this and say that it's almost in an extended adolescence where we're not pushing people to become independent functioning members of society We're teaching them to say, hey, stay in the system. The system will continue to take care of you for a long time. And I I think that's the incorrect goal.
1: I I definitely will say, you know, even with working in colleges, too, that I feel like depending upon what industry you go into, right, that bachelor's degree is the new equivalent to a high school diploma. You know, even to a lot of times a bachelor's degree isn't enough, right? You need to continue going further on to To graduate school. And, you know, I I think you're right, bringing it back to teachers, our end goal is for everyone to be successful, independent, functioning members of society. So I think one of the things that I'd be interested to hear from you, Adam, is How kind of fitting this all together, how can teachers evaluate the efficacy of what they're doing in terms of their their actual teaching, right? Is it that end goal of them getting into college or getting a job or or what do you think?
2: Yeah. So I have a lot of sympathy for the teachers because they're in a tough spot. And I, I don't think this is the fault of the teachers by any stretch. You know, and it's interesting too being in behavior analysis, working with kids with special needs for so long and teaching at the university level. I've had an opportunity to interact with so many teachers and so many people that were education majors that later went into teaching. And they were so excited about becoming teachers, so excited about becoming teachers. And then after three or four years, they end up leaving teaching and becoming behavior analysts, just like Ashley did.
1: Um, and,
2: just, and, you know, I, I think at some point we have to take some time and talk about, the contingencies involved with teachers. And mm. I, I really feel like this is more of a cultural problem uh, than it is with teachers. Teachers are, I, I don't want to say a victim, but they're subordinate to their the contingencies in their life, right? And so often, you know, I see teachers being blamed for some of this and the focus being on teachers and saying, either we need to train teachers better, we need to pay teachers more, We need to get teacher certifications, all sorts of things like that. Teachers unions, which is a whole nother discussion. But I I really think this is a cultural problem that needs to be changed at the cultural level. And I think that starts with individuals. I'm a big proponent of school choice. I think school choice is huge. I think that uh, ties directly in to selectionism. Let variation take its place. I would love to see more, as we talked about earlier, innovations in education. And I think that comes a lot from school choice. Let parents send their kids to the schools that they want. And what we're going to see is the bad ways of educating students will be selected out. Something else, you know, uh, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and we were talking about the possibility of getting rid of credentials, So what would happen if we got rid of degrees, just said no more degrees. And what if instead degrees were replaced with scores and we replaced them with standardized scores in different areas. So I'm not suggesting something like the SAT or the GRE or something like that, but what if we did that? What if we created scores in different skill areas and the teachers could be evaluated based on not just those outcomes, we could also evaluate teachers by the behaviors that they engage in. Obviously, we wanna measure both, not just outcomes, but behaviors. But you know, what would happen if we got rid of degrees? What, hap- what would happen if we got rid of high school degrees? And we just said, this student scored at this level in this particular area, this student scored at this level at that area, I'm curious to see what would happen, you know, what would happen at the college level as well. That would be huge. Would students start making those fifty dollars or $100,000 decisions if they knew that at the end they're, they're going to be uh, judged based on their scores? I don't know. I think that would be an interesting experiment to try out.
0: It's a very interesting perspective, for sure. <laughs> it makes me think of, too, how some kids they're way stronger in math than they are in reading. But like you said earlier, everyone, if you're in third grade, you have third grade reading, you have third grade math, but there are students who are more of a fifth grade reading level or a second grade reading level. So I think kind of going back to Looking at the system and how it's set up by grade level and age range and all the expectations, I know there was a study called Project Follow-Through. It was one of the largest, most extensive government-funded education research studies that compared 22 different models of instructions. And the results showed that one model of instruction was the most effective, which was direct instruction, which you kind of hinted at earlier. However, we're not using that. So the government put all of this money into this huge research study, and it wasn't implemented. So I just wanted to see what your thoughts were on that and maybe a little bit more about direct instruction.
2: Sure, direct instruction is really uh, just kind of like scripted learning. And you and I have had that discussion about that project follow-through. I believe that study occurred in the late 60s, early 70s, something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, it's a real shame too, because the data is there. The data shows this is the type. And and by the way, for the people that don't know out there, direct instruction is a type of uh, behavior analytic technologies. So, so direct instruction derives from behavior analysis. But the data shows, for anybody that's interested, can go out there and find it anywhere, uh, the project follow-through data. By far, the most successful technology on that graph was the use of a behavior analytic technology, namely direct instruction. And we're not teaching our instructors behavior analytic technologies. We're not teaching them the other ones as well, precision teaching, which focuses on uh, pinpointing, being specific. It focuses on fluency. We're not teaching personalized system instruction that focuses on uh, students moving at their own pace. We don't do a focus on instructional design. We do a focus on extending the school day and blaming Mm -hmm. teachers and uh, saying teachers need more or less pay, or teachers need to be held more or less accountable. So I would love as a behavior analyst for all the education systems to utilize behavior analytic technologies. But I I don't think the way to get there is to impose this on every school system around the country. Mm -hmm. We're all behavior analysts. We know how this works. The use of aversive control, if you force people by way of coercion, it's not going to work. I think, and I want to swing back around, I think this is where school choice comes into play. Let the bad educational methods be filtered out. And I'm going to use a a weird analogy here. So I'm going to use a sports analogy. I'm going to use the NFL. So the NFL is often referred to as the copycat league. So there's 32 teams in the NFL, and they have a very specific, easily identifiable way of figuring out who are the most successful teams, who wins the Super Bowl. And then what happens is after that team wins the Super Bowl every single year, the other 31 teams look and say, what did they do? And then they start copying those things. And the teams that are are the most successful most often for the past two decades, it's really been the New England Patriots, but uh, the teams that are the most successful, the other teams look and say, we're going to try to do that. We're going to try to create a version of that. And I, I really think that would be one of the biggest solutions I would start with right away is say, you know what? Let's implement more uh, school choice. I love charter schools. They're coming up with so many different innovations in educations, different ways of doing things that produce better outcomes. I'm not for a nationalized program of education. I think if we created more competition with regards to school choice, that would result in better overall scores throughout the country. So I, I think that would be... Uh, One of the first things that I would do, obviously, if I was the, what do they call them, uh, the education czar, something like that, I would push for the use of behavior analytic technologies. But I think we've all known really clever, really creative behavior analysts, really clever teachers that have come up with their own ways of utilizing the principles of behavior to teach students better. And I think we should give teachers and Administrators, school administrators, a lot more leeway to figure those things out themselves. I I think it's important to have a discussion about what we want to teach. And I, I think we should connect that back to how we teach. So I would love to see more functional education. I think we've stopped explaining why we're teaching things. So some of the things that we teach in school, we just say, just because I said so. This is important (laughs) I said so. And I I had, uh, when I first got to college, I had this great math instructor and he was really funny. And he used this example about how he used to teach kids that were part of the juvenile detention system in Florida. And he was struggling teaching um, some kids that had been arrested for like minor drug charges. So what he did was he sat down with one of them and he said, okay, how do you sell drugs to somebody else? And he had had him pinpoint how he sold drugs. And then he said, okay, how much are you going to sell to each person? And he said, I'm going to sell this. And he goes, how much, how are you going to price it? And then he walked him through something that he was interested in. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not (laughs) encouraging anyone to go out and sell drugs, but I thought it was super interesting. He, He found something that the student was interested in, which was selling drugs, and he walked backwards. And he used what what I would consider to be functional education. And I think we can do the same thing with a lot of students and say, what are you interested in? Are you interested in flying a plane? Yes, I'd love to learn how to fly a plane. Okay, so let's sit down here inside a plane. Obviously, this isn't logistically feasible, but uh, maybe it is with VR or something like that. But let's sit down inside a plane and. Okay, this is the gears. This is how you navigate this and that. Okay, well, how can you become a better navigator? Well, you're going to have to learn a little bit of math and whatever other skills they teach there, aeronautical engineering, whatever it is, and kind of walk backwards. Same thing with kids that are interested in cars. So, oh my gosh, Mm -hmm. I love a car. Well, let me teach you how the car works. And during that process, I'm gonna teach you what a screwdriver is and what a wrench is and the function that it serves. And something that I think we forget oftentimes is the world isn't filled up with matter. It's filled up with the things that matter. So for example, like, and I know this is an audio podcast but uh, you can see what I'm holding up here. I'm holding up what most people refer to as a cell phone but it's not really a cell phone. It's something that we use to communicate to other people with. Same thing with this. So if I pick up this, most of us would refer to this as a pen. It's not a pen. It's something that we write with. And I think if we take a more functional approach to learning, not just how we're learning, but what we're learning, I, I think that we would see a lot bigger interest from students and And I think they would progress through that hierarchy of mastery from competency to fluency, generalization, all of those things a lot more efficiently.
1: Yeah, I think that's super valuable. And I'm right there with you. I'm I'm a huge proponent of functional teaching because when we look at a lot of the current teaching methods that individuals are using and the curricula that are out there, a lot of times you know we'll hear that big buzzword they're evidence based right and sometimes are they really evidence based or are people just claiming they're evidence based right or what's the research behind it so just based upon kind of your expertise what would you classify as evidence based?
2: Oh my gosh that that's such a <laughs> that's such a sensitive topic for me. So <laughs> I think that we could draw a connection here between education research and psychological research. And I'd like to draw a distinction between behavior analytic research and mainstream psychology research. And I think one of the big differences between the two is in how the research is done. So in behavior analysis, we take an inductive approach to research. So we go from small to large. We we make the fewest assumptions. So we start by saying, we just want to figure out how organisms behave. And we're just making one assumption that there's something out there to figure out. So we take that assumption of determinism, that there's some sort of order in how people behave and how people learn. And that's kind of the fundamental structure of an inductive approach. So we go out and say, all right, let's just see what happens in the experiment and then After we see the same thing happen over and over and over and over again, we expand that out to other areas. So small to large. In other areas in mainstream psychology, they take a different approach. They take a deductive approach. And they come up with hypotheses and say, I think this is the reason for this. So I'm going to go in and test it. So it's a lot of times, a solution in search of a problem. And I think education research and what a lot of people uh, define as evidence-based in education suffers from the same problem where they come in and say, I've got this great learning technology. Let's see if it works. Instead, I think we should be moving from small to large instead of large to small and take these basic principles that we understand. So basic principles and behavior analysis positive and negative reinforcement, extinction, uh, stimulus discrimination, motivating operations, the things that we understand as behavior analysts and expand from there. And that's really what behavior analysts have done over the years. People like Ogden Lindsley with precision instruction, the Keller Plan personalized system of instruction, direct instruction, what Ashley, you and I talked about a little while ago. So all of those technologies expanded out from the basic principles of behavior science where so many of these other systems out there that we hear about have not expanded out from there. There are ideas that people came up with and said, you know what, we could teach this way and let's see how it goes. Let's pilot it with a group of students and hope for the best. And oftentimes it doesn't work out. So I, I think it's important to draw that distinction between an inductive and deductive approach to what we consider to be evidence-based. I'm not sure if that's what you were referring to or not, Brian, but I I think that's where I would go. Yeah, no,
1: definitely. I I think that that paints a clear picture and I agree with kind of starting with the basics, right? Starting with something small and and fine-tuning it before we push it out to the masses, (laughs) so to speak. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: So you've given a lot of suggestions on kind of what we should be focusing on or how we can change the school system. But I know a lot of teachers who are in classrooms and they're not the decision makers and they're having to listen to admin making the decisions or they have to accept whatever curriculum that the district puts in use. Do you have any tips specifically for the teachers who are in school systems to try to implement more of the behavior technologies and different instruction in their classroom? So teachers are limited in their resources. And I I speak to so many teachers
2: who tell me the same thing. I do the same thing for my classes um, where they end up spending money for all this money that gets spent around the education system. So many teachers out there end up buying their own materials. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think that there's I think there's a cheaper way of making a difference in the students' lives. And if I had to boil it down to one thing, which I don't think is a great idea, but uh, the top tip, I guess I would give is in the area of feedback. So the type of feedback that they provide on a regular basis to the students, I think could could be the most impactful strategy that teachers could use. And this does begin on an individual level. So earlier we talked about this being a cultural problem and it is, but the solution is at the individual level. And I think it can start with teachers. So in the type of feedback that they provide the students. So I think it's so important that if a student does something correctly, saying great job is great, but it's insufficient. Say great job and provide exactly what they did a great job at. So in behavior analysis, what we refer to is descriptive verbal praise. So when they're interacting with the students, if they do something correctly, use that as an opportunity to jump in and say great job and you know, switch up your praise, make sure that it changes from moment to moment, but jump in and say great job for doing this or for doing that, or great job at this or great job at that. And it works the same way when they provide constructive feedback. So that's providing positive feedback. But if they're providing corrective or uh, constructive feedback, make sure that it's, it's useful in some sense. And really, when you think about what feedback is, it's information transfer from a provider to a recipient. And the information that you provide, so if it's constructive, you can say, that's not correct. But say that's not correct because and explain what was incorrect. And then most importantly, provide them with instruction on how they can make it better. So Mm -hmm. that's really the key part. So there's so many different things that can be done at the uh, system-wide level. Um, And again, that starts with individuals as well. But at the teacher level, they can start by providing the best type of feedback that they can uh, to as many individual students as possible. They really don't have the uh, authority to have students move at their own pace. And Mm. the contingencies, the conditions in which teachers work, don't allow for that either. Because if they allow the students to move at their own pace, they would eventually get fired, right? Because there a whole bunch of students (laughs) that... Yeah, there would be a whole bunch of students that in their classes that wouldn't pass and Mm -hmm. they may be doing what we think would be correct, but their bosses wouldn't think it's correct. So I think the path of least resistance for teachers right now is to provide the best type of feedback that they can to the students in class. And that goes for the high performing students, as well as the low performing students provide Positive feedback that's useful, meaning that you provide enough information and the same for constructive feedback. It's okay to say something isn't correct, just explain to them why it's not correct and how they could improve on their answer. So that would be the top tip I would give. And I, you know, I would also encourage them to talk to their bosses, their administrators, speak to their teachers' unions about. You know, the importance of using instructional design in the classroom. Spend more time and effort on designing instruction, on programmed mm-hmm. instruction, as opposed to focusing on devices. We need innovations in learning that I hope spring from behavior science, not just a MacBook in the class or an iPad or something like that. Yes, that can help scale, but. That's not going to make the big difference. The big difference is going to be made with instructional design.
0: Yeah. And I love that you said feedback because it really does come back to providing that feedback and having it be valuable feedback. And even from the beginning, when you were talking about what the education system is like and not like, or even teaching, how teaching is not just lecturing, it's not just reading from a book. And you need a lot of that active responding and the students being actively engaged and the more actively they're engaged and participating, the more opportunity you have to provide feedback. So I think that's really, really valuable. And thank you so much, Adam, for everything you shared with us today. It's super, super valuable. And it does make us all think uh, a little bit more about some of the points you made and definitely kind of, you know, replaying this and pinpointing different parts where, you know, you want to ask those questions and talk to your admin and ask more about what behavioral technologies you can implement in instructional design. So so Adam, are there any resources you suggest educators look into related to instructional design or some of those behavior strategies you mentioned?
2: Yeah, so I, this is something that uh, any teacher out there can do is they can look up some of these uh, technologies that we've discussed. So they can look up uh, direct instruction, they can look up precision instruction, they can look up personalized system of instruction, they can look up some of the schools that are doing this. So, there's a fantastic school called the Morningside Academy that I think some of us are familiar with. They produce superstar learners at that school. So, and they actually provide uh, training classes, or at least they used to, I'm not sure. And I believe they're located in Seattle, Washington. So uh, they may be doing online courses. So I would strongly recommend to any teachers out there that are listening to check them out. And again, read up, watch YouTube videos on direct instruction, PSI and uh, precision instruction, and learn about how you can implement those strategies with uh, your kids in the classroom.
1: Excellent. And Adam, you've been a fantastic guest on our show today. You know, our listeners, if they wanted to follow up with you to be able to further have conversations regarding instructional design and and technology in schools, is there any way that they can connect with you or or find you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they can reach out to me. I'm on LinkedIn, so they can reach out to me through LinkedIn or they can uh, contact me directly through email at adam at buenoventures.com. I'd love to uh, interact with any instructors out there and help them get connected with some of these uh, teaching technologies that we've discussed.
1: Excellent. And we'll have those uh, for our listeners, those links in the uh, notes uh, for the podcast as well. So you'll be able to have access to them. Adam, Ashley and I, thank you so much for being on the show. And we definitely probably would love to have you back at some point, too, to share your wisdom, since you you do have a lot of knowledge in in various areas that I think teachers can find very useful.
2: Thank you for that uh, descriptive verbal praise. I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome.
0: Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. If you found value in this show, please leave a rating or share it with a friend. Resources mentioned during this episode and links to our social media pages can be found in our show notes. If you want to learn more about how Class on Task can make a difference in your classroom or school, check out our website, classontask.com. Thank you so much for joining us today and see you next time.